This is Someone Like Me, in Slavery Tennessee's podcast, working to educate listeners about the realities of human trafficking and empower survivors of this crime by telling their stories, both through interview and through interweaving their voice throughout all of our conversations. I'm Leslie, your host. This is the second of two episodes about shifts in law enforcement that are leading to major changes in trafficking, specifically in Tennessee. As police officers begin to understand that they may initially encounter a human trafficking victim as a perpetrator of other crimes, there has been a paradigm shift in how to engage. These shifts are informing law enforcement's role to serve and protect victims who have had no choice but to commit a crime, and officers are better prepared to respond to the victim with referrals for assistance. Part one of this series featured TBI agent Jason Wilkerson and In Slavery Tennessee CEO Margie Quinn, who's a retired TBI agent, on a conversation about Tennessee as a whole. Today's episode is with a local detective in Brentwood, Tennessee, Adrian Breedlove. On the surface, Brentwood is an affluent suburb of Nashville. It's the kind of place many might think that would be impervious to sex trafficking crimes. If you've listened to this show for long, you know that this crime exists anywhere and everywhere, even in wealthy communities. But as we talk with Detective Breedlove, you might be challenged in your understanding of sex trafficking, where it's happening, who's doing it, and who's participating. Again, please use discretion while listening to this as adult subject matter is discussed and may be triggering for some. Would you rather be the richest person in the world or the smartest? Probably the smartest because using the brains, I could get to the wealth. Aha. He wants it all. (laughs) It doesn't surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a question I wanted it all because I couldn't decide on this one, but I wonder, would you rather have no taste buds or be colorblind? Colorblind. Absolutely. I love food too much. Yeah, I love food too much. That was Stacy's yeah. response. That was my original thing, but then I wouldn't be able to go burning or bird watching as effectively. So I don't know. That's a tough one. I don't think I want to give up either one. <laughs> That's hard. That's hard. Yeah. Would you rather be in jail for a year or you lose a year of your life? I lose a year of my life. Hmm. Because I've had friends in prison. I've had friends in jail. And I wouldn't wish that upon, you know, only the worst people. I'd much rather just lose a year of my life. Yeah, spoken from understanding, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, Adrian, it is so good to have you here. We are so excited to have a law enforcement perspective on this podcast. We've Thank you. talked about it. And so this is kicking off a couple episodes of that. And specifically, you work in Brentwood, Tennessee, right? Yes. So yes, how long have you been in law enforcement and what is your current role in the department? So I've been a cop for 25 years, and for the last 19 years, I've been a detective at Brentwood. We've only got eight detectives, including our supervisor. So we're all general detectives. You know, we're a small agency, so we all do a little bit of everything. But we all have our own little niche and our own little expertise and interests. And mine happens to be the commercial sex trafficking, human trafficking aspect. You know, I've done everything from petty theft and and fraud to child sex abuse to murders and Brentwood loaned me out to DEA for eight years. And uh, so I've done 
regional, national, international drug trafficking cases. But after some of the things that I've been exposed to and some of the things that we've done, this is really a passion of mine is, is human trafficking. Hmm. You work in, as we said, Brentwood, which is a Nashville suburb. Yes, ma'am. Pretty great reputation of being great schools, pretty wealthy. What would you say Brentwood looks like on the surface? Well, we like to pretend that Brentwood has this giant bubble around it and that it's got this force field around it that protects us, but crime is everywhere. Like I said, I've been all over the country working. I've been all over the country teaching, but there's something special about Brentwood. Whether it is, you know, a good place to live, a good place to work, it's just a special community. You know, you've got parks galore. I think we have probably the most, if not close to the most parks per square mile of anywhere in Tennessee. But the people themselves in Brentwood, our, our citizens, our community, is very community focused. They're overall just good people and kind people. And we're very thankful that there are overwhelmingly pro-police in Brentwood. Mm. But as you said, crime is happening everywhere. That is correct. And specifically for this conversation, sex trafficking is happening everywhere. It's happening in Brentwood. It's happening in this upper middle class, community-focused town. Where do you see it happening? What, what would people be surprised about Brentwood as it relates to sex trafficking? So people have a mindset a lot of times of, oh, that doesn't happen here. It, you know, that doesn't happen here at all. Well, anywhere you have a hotel, you're going to have sex trafficking. It doesn't matter where that hotel is, what type of hotel that is. You know, like I say, I've traveled all over the country, even with my family, and we were in a nice area, a very nice area once, and checked into a hotel, and sure enough, you know, me knowing what I know, I see it right there in front of me. And if you think about it, would a trafficker rather have a quieter, safer area to work from, or would they rather be in a crime-ridden area, a well, an area where the police are always at? So mm-hmm. a lot of times they will choose the safer community, the wealthier, more affluent area if there's hotels in that area because they could attract better clientele, better pay, better tippers, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. And unfortunately, a lot of times less of a chance to get caught because mm-hmm. it's it's hidden easier yeah. versus out in the open. It's well hidden in Brentwood. So that's where it's mainly focused at is the hotels. And we do have a really good working relationship with the hotels. I've got some really good hotel partners that we've trained mm-hmm. up and they are quick to call us if they suspect anything. So it's become a really good partnership. Wow, that's neat. And I think what's interesting in that is the clientele that you mentioned because I think a lot of people maybe have a perception of who is actually paying for this person who's being trafficked. And there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance when you're working in a wealthy sort of neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But the clientele is also everywhere. That is correct. Demand is everywhere. So there have been a few news reports about big stings, big busts. And I know you've you've been involved in a lot of them. You even mentioned with the DEA, you were involved in a lot of things. It's important, I think, to note, and Stace and I were talking about this, that you do this day in, day out. So this is kind of, you're seeing these things all the time. And we only see these pockets 
of these big busts and stings. Not everything goes into the news reports. And I, I think we get a skewed view of what trafficking looks like because only certain things get in the public eye. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Was there a particular bust or sting or moment that you remember very clearly, whether it was public or, or not? We've had several. We've done demand reduction, which is what people call the John stings. But we've also been And what able does to, that mean? A demand reduction is where we're bringing awareness to the public through media, through arrests or citations, where basically there's advertisements and those advertisements are in effect law enforcement and people respond to these advertisements oh, okay. and come to the hotel and then, you know, expecting to meet with a 15-year-old girl, you know, or even adult, and then lo and behold, it's us. We've done several of those because, again, like I say, we're not immune. Nobody is immune to this, no matter what size or where your community is. Nobody's immune to this. So we want to make sure to bring a light to this and say, hey, look, if you are doing this, you might get caught. And if you do, your name is going to be out there, and it's hard to go backwards from that. Mm. You know, I've actually, we had a family friend who was arrested for that, and it destroyed his family. There have unfortunately been, you know, other professionals that have been, you know, arrested for that type of thing, and deservedly so, their careers have taken a sour turn. So when you were talking about what this thing looks like, it reminds me of when my eyes were first opened to this dynamic. I didn't know what to call it when I first learned about this, but Dateline NBC did a series called To Catch a Predator. Mm-hmm. And Chris Hansen would do something very similar, working with law enforcement. And what shocked me was they took this segment all over the country and set it up so that the same thing you just described. And I saw man after man after man come in expecting to have sex with a child, bringing paraphernalia to help this happen. And I didn't know what to call it. But later on, as I began to continue looking into what in the world, how how do they find this? I realized that's part of sex trafficking. And it was my first introduction into how prevalent this is. It is. It's it's very prevalent. We're very thankful we're able to do those type of uh, investigations. I know there was one recently out of West Tennessee that was in the news. We had one a few years back, the one that I was out of town for, where we cited or arrested 22 people in Brentwood mm-hmm. for that in one of our hotels. And was that the demand? That's the demand reduction, That was the yes. demand reduction. Okay. And so then a few years, uh, actually... 2019, so it's been a couple of years now, Mm -hmm. we did a big thing with FBI, Homeland Security, TBI, and Nashville in Middle Tennessee, where we did a uh, thing related to the NFL draft. And it was just because there were an influx of people into Nashville. And that's an interesting point you make, because there is this red herring that says Super Bowl is one of the most prevalent events for trafficking, but it's really where there's an influx of a lot of people, right? That's more true than just saying it's the Super Bowl on exactly. its own. Anywhere yeah. you have throngs of people, you're going to have an increase in any kind of crime, whether mm-hmm. it's fraud, trafficking, drugs, et cetera. It's, it, there's always going to be a, an increase. And so in order to work that aspect, you know, like I said, we worked with the FBI Uh, Homeland Security, TBI, Department of State, actually, the State Department, Mm -hmm. us, Metro, and a couple of other local agencies. And we ended up getting, in Brentwood, we just reached out to some ads. We 
saw something that looked like it might be juveniles. And so when we did that, the car pulls up and there was an adult female and three juvenile females in the car. Two of the juvenile females came into the hotel with condoms ready to um, perform the sex acts. So that led to a pretty big bust for the defendant, the trafficker. And that was a female trafficker. That is correct, yes. She was an adult female trafficker, and I just learned that she recently pled guilty and she's serving her sentence and is also going to be on the sex offender registry for life, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. to me is a big win as well. Yeah. So, you know, there's several of them that are memorable, but those are the ones that are really, I don't want to say gratifying or satisfying, but they are kind of satisfying because you feel like you're making a difference. Yeah. You know, you can't change it all. You can't fix everything. But you can fix one thing. Mm -hmm. And if you fix one thing, that one thing could lead to another and so on. Well, and I think what's been really interesting to hear from people sitting in your seat, whether it be on the criminal justice side or on the prevention side, is there are all these touch points that someone who is a victim of this interacts with. You know, and any one of those touch points could completely change their life. But knowing what we know about generational trafficking and passing this sort of exploitation mindset on, that could change the life of generations of people Mm -hmm. just with one action. Right. So you talk about these kids that you were able to help. At what point do you work with an in-slavery Tennessee? At what point do they get involved? We're always very quick to call. Um, I mean, immediately. Obviously, with the juveniles, I think uh, one or two of them have been reported as runaways or something like that. So that ended up being a a DCS thing. The Department of Children's Services was involved. But if I recall correctly, slavery was involved right at the very beginning as well because ESTN has services that Department of Children's Services doesn't have. You know, Mm -hmm. there are are things that you all can do that DCS just can't through their resources. So whether it's an adult or a minor, we're quick to call – you know, anytime that those of us in the know and those of us who work these cases are in the know, therefore, we know who to call. I've got the phone numbers and cell phone numbers of the people that I can reach out to at any time and say, hey, I've got this going on and I need help tonight. Mm. It's almost like a quick reaction force. I know some of our direct service personnel here, the therapists and the care coordinators, they do get calls mm-hmm. from some of the different people in law enforcement. Yeah. Just various times because they know. And I think, if I'm recalling correctly, too, that there have been times when our folks go out there with you and from enslavery to be available right at that point of identification. Because I think maybe some people that are victims don't identify as victims right away, Mm. or they certainly probably are nervous about having law enforcement come to them. And I don't know what that feels like in your from your perspective or what it looks like from your perspective. But once they enter our program, you know, that's sort of the idea is that there's a big distrust of law enforcement, but this begins to change their minds when you react differently. And it reminds me of a story, actually, Adrian. So remember when we first met, it's been about three years, I think, and you told me a story. I said, well, what's what's going on with human trafficking in Brentwood right now? And you said, well, just maybe yesterday, you had gone to a hotel because somebody had called from the front desk who you've been talking to, and there was a woman who was working. But you told me something that really opened my eyes to what is possible. And you said that you talked to her. You said she wasn't allowed to do this. You were obligated to arrest her. 
but you wanted to give her an opportunity to get out of the life, and you had a program for her. It was in slavery, Tennessee, and mm. she didn't have to do this, and you didn't want to have to. Re- so you were just kind of working through options for her so that you didn't have to put her through the system. Exactly. And I just thought that was if all police officers understood what they were seeing and understood that they were seeing a victim and not a criminal, this could change everything. Tell me more about that, about how you learned to do that, and where did that come from? If I write a citation to a young woman working in a hotel, if I set up an undercover date with her and go in, if I write her a citation, what is that going to do to better her life? You know, what is that going to do to change her life? Is that citation going to make her say, oh, I'm, I'm done with this. You know, I got this ticket. I'm never going to do this again. Or is a compassionate officer who says, look, you know, there's another way. And I have the resources and the help that can get you out of this if this is what you want. I understand that you're doing this because, you know, you're trying to support your habit, your addiction to this drug or that drug or for this reason, or for that reason. But there are people out here who have been in your shoes who are helping people just like you get out of this. And I'm trying to give you this option. So mm-hmm. how about we go this route instead? I'm not going to tell you that you have to do this, but here's right. the telephone number right here. This is a, a hotline number that you can call any time after I leave or whenever. So, you know, like you say, there is at some point, maybe not right then, it might plant a seed Mm -hmm. that doesn't sprout for another few months or a year or so. But at some point, that person may say, you know what, I remember this happening. Mm -hmm. And so it gives that to them and also gives them the thought, hey, not everybody is out to get me. Not every cop is out to bust me. I can write you a citation for for this, or I can write you a citation for the drugs or the paraphernalia or whatever. But again, what is that going to do to change your life? Probably not a lot. As a matter of fact, if you have a pimp, which a lot of them will claim that they don't, Mm -hmm. they say that they're independent and I do this all on my own. And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, their phone is ringing off the hook from the same person over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. That's a clue to me. But, you know, if they're not going to tell me that, they're just not going to tell me. So I say, look, here's the option. But if I arrest them again, their pimp's going to get mad at them, and it's just going to be just another charge on their rap sheet. And that's, again, not going to help them. Well, it doesn't really give much empowerment to them, even if you are trying to help with an arrest or with a, you know, with a citation it doesn't really give them much power to change. It doesn't really put the power in their hands, right? Right. And I want to make clear also that there are points that somebody does need to go to jail. As a matter of fact, we have some new officers at our department, and I recently got called by one of the officers, hey, can you meet me at booking because I have somebody that I want you to talk to? Because she knows what I do. Mm -hmm. And I went down there and uh, immediately recognized that this is a woman who has been working the streets, working the hotels, doing all kinds of stuff to support her drug habit, stuff that she didn't grow up wanting to do, Mm -hmm. but she does now. And I recognize that, hey, she's probably going to need to go to jail. And so I called one of my contacts who actually knew her, knew her very well, and said, hey, here's what's going on. I have this person, and 
she's going to jail. And that person said, well, good. That's where she needs to be because it's going to save her life. And and I've had several people tell me that. As a matter of fact, a, a very good friend told me that last night. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, there were some things going on, and every single time it seemed like everything was closing in, I got arrested and put in jail, and that saved my life. That's a good yep. point. So there are times when jail is the better option to at least save your life for a while. Mm-hmm. One thing that I don't know where this sort of question or statement will go, but I think it is an important note to distinguish between your role as a detective and what you're doing and then officers who are, I know for some departments, their official title is like PO2 or something, where they're taking calls all day from dispatch, right? right. And so you're kind of a little bit able to do more detective work. Obviously, that's your job. Whereas maybe other officers are just responding to calls and have to get to the next call Right? Is there a distinction there in terms of what roles are looking like there is. the department? Thankfully, in smaller departments, we're not as overrun with calls. I know here in Nashville, Metro Police, especially being so understaffed right now, are going from call to call to call. They have calls stacked up and waiting for somebody to answer for hours at a time versus our department, which again is smaller. We have, I think, about 70 or 71 sworn personnel for 42 square miles. And our officers have a lot more, I don't want to say free time, but they have more time to actually do things. And we're also small enough at 70 or 71 officers that we kind of all know each other. And they know, hey, if you run into this type of thing, call this person. If you run into this type of thing, call Breedlove because he'll, he'll respond. So they're pretty quick to call. So that versus... An agency with 1,400 officers or an agency with 3,000 officers or even several hundred officers, they don't all know each other and they don't have those connections or relationships, so they don't know who to call. And so it just becomes something to write on paper, something to issue a citation for or to make an arrest for and go to the next one. So we're able to treat everything more in the smaller suburban agency with more time, more investigative effort whether it's from the street or on up into the detective divisions. Okay. I think that's an important distinction to make. It seems to me that you are probably more often encountering people who are selling for prostitution and the Johns who are purchasing that you may not have as much contact with the traffickers themselves. Those are the three actors, I guess, in this this situation. How do you get to the place where you're able to arrest a trafficker, identify, I guess, an arrest. Right. It depends on the case. It depends on the, what we're, the way that we're approaching it. If, for instance, get a phone call from a hotel and the manager or whoever calls me says, hey, I've got this person in this room. I'm pretty sure that they're working because there's a lot of traffic in and out and I'm seeing this. Okay, great. How many rooms do they have? Did anybody come in with them? Is there anybody else checked in that may or may not be involved? Mm -hmm. And so we go and take a look and see all of that and put all that together. But what we've seen recently is the pimps or the traffickers are not even at the same hotel. So, for instance, we have one on the north side of our city, just outside of Nashville, where the room for working was at this hotel. And the trafficker was actually staying at a hotel a couple of miles away in Nashville. Mm. So that creates jurisdiction issues at least. But from there, there's investigative methods that we could use. And 
it all goes down again to the interviews of the escort or the prostitute or the potential trafficking victim that if they're going to disclose anything, hey, are you being supplied drugs? Are you under duress for this? Are you doing this? Have you been beaten? You Trying know, to figure out, is there force, fraud, or, or coercion? Exactly. Which are the three Which main the tenets three of big parts of the Commercial Sex Trafficking Act, yes. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to get to is that versus, and I don't want to say just promoting prostitution because promoting prostitution is a felony, and that's basically the pimping charge. Mm. Um, but you go from a, a low-level felony with the promoting prostitution to a class B or a class A, depending on the situation, felony, which is a big felony for the commercial sex trafficking. So it's our job on the very beginning in those first few minutes of trying to figure out and almost triage what's going on in just a very short time period of what you've got. And if you can get to that point where you can say, okay, I think we're really got something going on here, then we have other investigative methods that we can go around on the backside after I've given her all of the resources that she could want or need to get out of this and move forward, I can go around on the backside and follow up with some stuff and just kind of work in the background. And then months later, this develops into something big. Yeah, because I think we often hear about maybe the John who gets arrested. We hear about Hopefully, if there's a victim who gets into the enslavery system or other direct service providers, but we don't hear much about the actual trafficker themselves. And I think it's interesting, the woman you just mentioned, the woman trafficker, how you said you you heard that she was found guilty or she she's actually going to jail for yes. trafficking, right? Yes, she has pleaded guilty to three counts of commercial trafficking for a sex act. She was found guilty of three counts of that and is currently uh, on the sex offender registry and is serving her sentence. I'm not sure exactly where and how she's serving that sentence right now, but I do know that she has pleaded guilty and is going through the system with that. Yeah. So something that is really interesting to me about where you work and the area of Brentwood is the conversation of the buyer and the John. Mm -hmm. What do you think people think a buyer looks like? And then based on your experience, what does a buyer actually look like? These 22 people that you got in the demand reduction operation, what did they look like? So people want to probably see a John as some nefarious person who hides in the shadows and tiptoes around and has this, just this look, you know, that's one of those guys right there. Shady. Exactly. Uh -huh. Just that shady living in the shadows, just, oh, it's got to be him right there. Mm -hmm. But in reality, a John looks like anybody from any walk of life. He's an unemployed drug addict. He's a blue collar worker at a, at a warehouse. He's an IT professional. He's a professional athlete or a CEO making a million plus dollars a year. He's single, he's divorced, or he's even married, hmm. you know, with kids. He's a traveling businessman, he's on an out-of-town work trip, or he's a local guy living next door to you. He's your friend that you hang out with on the weekends, or you see at your kid's Taekwondo class, or at Sunday school. Hmm. You know, that's a John. It can be anybody. Anybody. We hear these horror stories of, oh, this scandal of this person who did this thing and they're a really high-profile person. But I think what's even more insidious is the person 
at the Taekwondo class at your Sunday school who is involved? I want to take it a step further because if you think about the the amount of money that is being made illegally, I guess, in this situation, there are millions and millions of dollars. And it's so prevalent that it's not just those profiles, but it's more personal. I mean, it's your cousin, it's your brother, it might be your dad or your son. Mm. I think that's the situation, too, is that it's it's closer than we think. I don't think we need to maybe <laughs> accuse folks right away, but I, I do think it's closer than we want to imagine. And you've said a couple times about different ads, because we know Backpage got shut down, which mm-hmm. is great, but then there's also some conversation to say, well, all of that just went other places. Exactly. And actually, our founder testified at a congressional hearing that eventually led to the shutdown of Backpage. So where are these normal people engaging with commercial sex? It's not even really gone underground at all. It's just shifted. At least with Backpage, Backpage was running out of the United States, as well as Craigslist. It was running out of the United States. Now a lot of them have shifted to uh, Eastern European-based servers or on another continent servers where the power of the subpoena has – they can just ignore that. Therefore, they don't have to answer any kind of legal demands from the United States. So that has changed things a little bit. So there are plenty of advertising websites out there that make no bones about what's going on. I mean, there is nothing left to the imagination when you look at these advertisements at all. Mm. It's just, this is what it is. So our job is to go through these sites and use uh, various methods to find, locate, and identify especially juvenile trafficking victims, but also adult trafficking victims, because this doesn't just happen overnight. This doesn't just happen, hey, you know, I woke up today and I think I'm going to do this today. That's not Mm -hmm. how this happens. Mm -hmm. This is not just a simple decision, and I'm going to drink coffee or I'm going to drink water today. Sure. It's much different than that. So they have gone to different sites, multiple sites. You know, you'll see the same advertisements on the, the same women advertised on numerous sites because those numerous sites hit different demographics or they hit different preferences. Mm. We're all creatures of habit. Everybody is a creature of habit. And so the John or the consumer, I guess you could say, may have his preference of this website over that website. He doesn't like the layout of this one versus the layout of this one or the ease of navigation of one on the smartphone versus on the computer because you don't want to be sitting at home with the wife and kids going through this on your desktop. So you got to find the right one for the cell phone, Hmm. you know, or the phone that you have stashed in your desk at work or something like that. So that's the kind of thing that they look for. So we have to also be on top of those as well. So, yeah, shutting down Backpage was a great thing. But there's a page that looks exactly like Backpage did and even has the word Backpage in its name that is out there right now and is being used. So except it's not based in America, it's based in Europe. So then your job becomes less about shutting down the instrument and more about just finding the specific people that are being listed. Because at that point, there's not much you can do to shut down something based in another country. No, I can't do anything about yeah. that. The Even the FBI can't usually, usually cannot do anything about that. There are other instances where it can be done, but 
in the grand scheme of things, our job on a day-to-day basis is to find the victims, find the consumers, and find the traffickers. And so we have to focus on those because, like I said, we can't change it all. We can't save everyone. We can't do it all, but we can save one. Mm-hmm. We can change one. And that one could make a difference in dozens more and grow that way. Yeah, so I think about this season. We are talking beyond survivors, and one of the reasons we do that is to talk about the complexity of how trafficking works. And I think the hallmark of what we do at Enslaved Tennessee is building those collaborative relationships. And what you do too, Adrian, is build those collaborative relationships with various sectors of the community from the people who are the victims of the crime, and you're giving them dignity to make choices. And then we're there so that you have somebody to refer to so that they can maintain that continuum of dignity for this person who is a victim. And the court systems have helped build laws so that we can all do that a little bit better. So I love the idea of this collaborative effort to deal with a very complex problem. And we need all the different voices, all the different professions. We need all involved. And I I have a dream. My dream is <laughs> that we ultimately hear the voice of a reformed, who's somebody, somebody who has been through recovery stages as John and speaks out and says something like, I did this because there's, there's thousands of them, you know, mm. and, and there has, we, we talk about a path to redemption for the victims of the crime, but what about reformation for the people who are perpetrating the crime? I mean, ultimately mm. that makes us a better world. So I have a vision of that. And I think you're a part of that too, possibly Adrian. What do you think about that? That's harder in your profession as a cop. To be honest, it's it's not because I actually know someone who has actually written a book from that angle, from that mm. perspective. And this is someone who was a family friend mm-hmm. who lost his family because of this. And through his own experiences, he has written a book about it. And with him in particular, it wasn't just about the purchase. Mm-hmm. The purchase was a symptom, kind of like if you think of drug addicts. Many times the drug and the drug use is a symptom right. of the trauma. And the trauma didn't start yesterday or this morning. The trauma started 30 years ago. The trauma started 15, 20 years ago when when they were a child through abuse, sex abuse, things like that. Like you said, kids under 10 years old being groomed or assaulted, things like that. And we talk about trauma-informed care for our survivors. And before now, prostitutes were seen as the perpetrators. Exactly. Mm. And so if we're really moving toward an end to human trafficking, we do have to address perhaps the mechanisms that brought somebody to the place where they would want to purchase uh, Well, so two, it's, it's stepping into the problem. And then there's also prevention. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you, Adrian, too, we've kind of profiled this where the victim is a woman and the perpetrator is male. We have distinguished that traffickers are male and female that you've seen. My guess is that that's a trend, but it's not what everything looks like. So have you been able to identify different genders, like the opposite of we're talking? Right. Yes. As a matter of fact, I kind of have things that I look for. And obviously my area of focus 
on a daily basis is Brentwood, obviously. However, I am part of the Middle Tennessee Human Trafficking Task Force, which is headed up by Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, mm-hmm. but also made up of task force agents from other agencies. And so thankfully my scope is able to move out a little bit okay. and can uh, do a little bit extra. As a matter of fact, the Metro Nashville Police Department has also joined with the Human Trafficking Task Force, and they have several task force agents as well now. Mm -hmm. So we have a bigger team versus just three or four agents across the state. Right. Now we have, you know, a force multiplier or a quick reaction force for problems or areas. So we do look at certain things. And there's certain things to look for. And by and large, the majority of the advertisements that I see on a daily basis are women, mainly young women, sometimes underage. And then there's just straight up male advertisements. So those are some of the things that we do see. And going back to something you were saying earlier is for the longest time, prostitution was seen as criminals. Mm -hmm. But like we talked about with the paradigm shift, My job as a police officer and as a detective is to be a guardian and a protector of everyone. And that everyone includes those who, yes, they are committing criminal acts, but the reason for that is, you know, the later on layers and the services are for. But my job is to protect everybody. And in protecting everybody, that includes changing the way that officers, not just in my city and not just in Tennessee, but all over the U.S., view these young, predominantly Mm. young women, view them as not criminals, but as victims of something, whether they're a victim of a trafficker or whether they're a victim of their trauma that has led them down this road. Mm -hmm. If you see them as a person versus just some again, nefarious person in the shadows, mm. then that changes the way that you're going to deal with them. And that's that's what we have to do now. Mm-hmm. What if there is someone who is involved in criminal activity that isn't commercial sex? Are there times when red flags will show up in dealing with that person that make you think, hmm, I wonder if this could be, because we know that it is true, but sex trafficking rarely just stands alone Victims rarely just stand alone as a victim. There's off. There's often other criminal activity happening on top of that, whether it be drugs, assault, burglary. What does that look like? So what I've found throughout my own investigations and my own experience is that even if you look at someone's criminal history, if you if you run into the young woman at the hotel, and when I talk to them, I go ahead and get their criminal history and all this, that, and the other their own self-reported criminal history, as well as the official from NCIC, from the computer database. And when I see that, they may or may not even have a prostitution arrest ever in their life. Mm -hmm. A lot of their arrests are going to be for possession of drug paraphernalia, possession Mm -hmm. of uh, Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 drug like heroin or cocaine, things like that. Those are the arrests. Every now and then some thefts. So those arrests are out there, and that's the vast majority of them. As a matter of fact, the woman I was talking about earlier who our officer called me to come talk to, she was being arrested for possession of, I believe, possession of heroin and some other stuff. Had nothing to do with trafficking, had nothing to do with prostitution. But as soon as I started talking to her, I immediately recognized, just based on 
my own experience. And thankfully, this officer, this newer, younger officer, she has a lot of good experience as well from other areas. She able, she was able to recognize it. What were those things? It's little red flags, little things that just add up. Micro facial expressions, body language, just some of the things that she would say that some 16-year-old girl arrested for shoplifting for the first time would not yeah. say. You know, mm-hmm. just you could tell that she's been around the block a few times and has been down the road a few times, and you could just tell. So we started talking, and I said, hey, you know, or it's obvious that you're a heroin addict. You know, how are you paying for it? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's yeah. how you get to it. How are you paying for this? Right. Because really these habits are expensive, and not everybody is a CEO of a company, uh, especially if you're a hardcore drug addict. You're not the president of whatever company you want to name, you're somebody who hasn't had a job in years. And mm-hmm. so obviously you have to make money somehow. And that's the self-reporting. Say, look, I'm not here to bust you for that. I'm here to see what we can do to help. Mm-hmm. And so that opens that conversation up and it's kind of playing the good cop role and a good cop, bad cop and just saying, look, there's other things out there. There's another life out there for you. It's not going to be an easy life, but at least it's living. Right now you're just existing and you you never grew up wanting to exist. You grew up wanting to live. Hmm. So let's get you to that. So it's just a matter of talking and bringing that out and just having that compassionate ear. Yeah. People want to be heard. And hmm. if you will listen, they'll they'll talk to you. Has there been a particular survivor that you've learned a great deal from in your time working in this? One of them that we learned a lot from, not just me, but a lot of us in this area learned a lot from. I'll call her Lacey. Lacey was part of the first human trafficking trial in Williamson County history. Mm -hmm. I was the lead agent on that. I was the case agent or the investigating detective on that. Kelly Lawrence from the Williamson County DA's office was the prosecutor on that. And it was a very special case for several reasons. Uh, number one, again, it was the first in Williamson County history, but it was also the first in Tennessee history that used the transporting or harboring area of the statute for trafficking for a commercial sex act. Okay. Because there was no evidence at all that Lacey even performed any kind of act for money in Williamson County or in Brentwood because... Her story was, she's a very smart girl, came from a good upbringing, a good family, went to private school her whole life. It was the idyllic situation for, you know, opportunities that a lot of victims never have. Mm -hmm. But she had those opportunities. She was also rebellious. She was a rebellious teen girl and ended up doing a lot of partying, a lot of drugs. She admitted that she used every single drug under the sky until she got to heroin, and heroin flipped that switch, and it was on from there. That's all that she cared about was heroin and opioids. Mm. And so it doesn't pay for itself. She started stealing, doing other things, and eventually paying for her drugs through sex, went to rehab a few times, walked away from rehab every single time, ended up getting some help, getting into a drug court, thankfully, and she got into a drug court, failed miserably and ended up going to jail for a while. And when she got out of jail, the itch of the heroin, you know, needles still needed to be scratched. So she started using again, 
started supporting that habit through prostitution and ended up with one pimp and then ended up with another pimp. He said, look, my girls don't use drugs. And so she ended up detoxing in this pimp's house, just cold turkey with no help, nothing, just detoxed, which creates a problem in itself later on. But she ended up detoxing and then started working for him. And then they started traveling together. He had three girls working for him. And they ended up in in Arkansas. And at some point, this other pimp answered her. uh, It wasn't even her ad. It was her friend's ad that she was working with. Answered the ad, came to the hotel room, and paid them, gave them drugs, which, again, was taboo because... His girls didn't use drugs, mm-hmm. but this guy gave them drugs, and therefore now he had something over them. Mm-hmm. And when he came back to the hotel a little bit later, he said, you're mine. Let's go. And so he took them to Texas. The other girl got away. Lacey did not. And because of that, Lacey was beaten to pay for the other girl escaping. She was brought back to Arkansas, taken to Florida, back to Arkansas again, and ended up uh, coming to Nashville. And thankfully for Lacey, they ended up at a Brentwood hotel. And before they were able to get set up for her to work, he got mad at her again and beat her again. And at some point she just snapped and ran out and had somebody call 911 for her. And then we responded. So from her, we learned that a trafficking victim can be anybody. She was young enough to be my daughter. I was old enough to be her father. So this could be my daughter. You know, and and she was at the age where another friend of mine had a lot of this stuff happen to her. She was just a regular girl who had all these opportunities and just had a drug addiction. But we also learned that in order to go through the criminal justice system, you know, there's an old saying, no victim, no problem. So you've got to know where your victims are and keep an eye on them. And thankfully, that's when um, Special Agent Wilkerson and I first started working together was through her case. And it also introduced me to In Slavery, Tennessee, which I didn't really know a lot about. But we were able to get her to a safe house, get her, you know, the help that she needed. But it also showed me that just because she's safe for tonight doesn't mean she's safe for good. Mm-hmm. because even though she went through the program and was doing great and was being successful, then some other things ended up going on, and she walked away and walked away right back into addiction and walked away right back into a hotel room and mm-hmm. ended up going around the United States doing some stuff. And I would see her ads. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd, every now and then I'd see her ads, and I'd reach out to her and – Say, hey, you know, you don't have to do this. But again, that's just not what it was. So like I said, there's that's one thing we did learn was that you can't save everybody, but if you can save one, that one could help save somebody else. Mm-hmm. Also learned that in a trial setting, especially with a victim of trafficking, you've got to address the elephant in the room head on. And thankfully, our prosecutor is really good at that. She said, look, she does not look like you. She does not act like you. She doesn't talk like you, talking to the jurors, prospective jurors. You know, we want to make sure that just because of that, you can understand that not all victims look alike. 
not all victims have never done a crime. You know, not all victims have not done a crime yesterday or today. This is somebody who is currently an addict, currently uses drugs, will probably admit to you that she did some acts yesterday. So there are things that you have to head off at the pass. Yeah. Because like I said, not every victim looks the same. And she was a really good example of of that. We also learned that there's a lot of back-end work. You know, yeah, you can arrest the bad guy all day long. I have an old uh, an old friend that I worked with a long time ago, actually at the very beginning of my career, and then when I was a DEA as well, worked with him again. He said, all it takes is handcuffs to put somebody in jail. It mm-hmm. takes an ink pen to leave them there. And so, wow. you know, we've changed from the ink pen to the to the keyboard now and the reports. But basically, it, that adage does ring true. Yeah, I can put him in jail, but now we've got to convict him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what you right. think, what you know, and what you can prove. And we have to prove the elements of the commercial trafficking for a sex act. And there's several elements that we have to prove. And in order to do that, that's a lot of work on the back end, which is what I'm built for. I'm built for complex conspiracies. And that's exactly Mm. kind of the way that we have to work them is as a complex conspiracy, which, you know, thankfully I have the background and, and ability to do that. And so, you know, it is our job to not only learn things, but to pass on the things that we've learned Mm -hmm. to new agents and new investigators that are coming in to investigate this kind of stuff. So we're very thankful for that. I like the way he talks about how he passed things along. I mean, it happens in all the things that we're doing. You know, our direct service people pass along what they've learned. But my favorite passing along is when our survivors Mm. say to other survivors that begin in the program, hey, you can do this. It's not going to be easy. And guess what? If you make a mistake and you leave, they're going to be here with open doors. You can come back. And that's you illustrated that, too. It's it's not just a one-time thing. It's a long-term mm-hmm. commitment to a complex relationship. Exactly. I've heard it described as there's different people in different stages of life. You can plant the seed. You can water the seed and it becomes a plant. You can nurture the plant, or you can harvest the fruits. And at some point throughout somebody's life, there may be somebody that plants a seed and never sees the harvest, or there may be somebody who nurtures the plant and waters the plant and lets it and helps it grow, who never sees the person that planted it mm. or the person that, you know. So we all have the opportunity, no matter who we are or what role we are, to be that person that either plants the seed or nurtures the plant or eventually harvests the fruit. And, mm. and the fruit is this beautiful butterfly who's transformed her life into something amazing. And that's something to behold right there. And unfortunately, for a lot of uh, officers on the front end, we don't get to see that. But if we do keep up with things and we do have the good resources and the connections and the relationships with the organizations, then we can eventually see that. To me, that's a very rewarding part of this job. Yes. What would you tell your community about commercial sex trafficking? What, What do you want them to know and how can they make a difference? So there's a couple of different ways to make a, a difference. Number one, the organizations that do this are nonprofits, and they exist on grants and donations and corporate sponsorships and things like that. Become a sponsor. Give. You know, not just on the whatever National Giving Day or whatever. Give your round. 
And if you can't give money, give time. Be a volunteer. Just be somebody there to, hey, you know, do you need some, you need me to run these papers, some, you know, anything. Mm -hmm. Just volunteer time. And above everything, it costs nothing to be a good person. It's free to be a good person and to be a listening ear and to just look out for things. If you see something, say something. It's very much cliche, but, you know, if you see something, say something. If you suspect something's going on, and again, a lot of these things are right there in front of your eyes. And once you're exposed to them, you can't unsee that, which kind of can be exasperating when you're in the car with your family. (laughs) <laughs> or like you mentioned on that hotel trip, you're trying to have a family vacation and all yeah, of a sudden hard. there you are. Exactly. Seeing things. Exactly. And then you just got to, you know, if you do see something like that and you are on a hotel trip or like that, say something to the front desk, you know, say, hey, can I, you know, be the Karen that wants to speak to the manager. <laughs> <laughs> be the Karen. Be oh the my. Karen. Go speak to the manager <laughs> and say, look, I think this is going on up in this room. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I'm smelling. And that way, at least you've said something. It's out of your hands. So, but again, give, give, you know, money, give time, give effort. Just give goodness. Mm. That's what I would suggest. I just love so much of what you said. Mm -hmm. I think it does everybody good to hear from all aspects and to hear the tenderness in your, I know you're a tough cop, (laughs) but it's nice to hear the tender (laughs) side. (laughs) Um, thank you for sharing with us today. Yep. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. In Slavery, Tennessee thanks the Jones Legacy Group for their continued support of Someone Like Me. Our production staff is Gregory Byerline, Stacy Elliott, and Marissa Brunell. Claire Bidigary Curtis is our engineer, and original music is by Zach and Maggie White. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thank you for listening.